Welcome to Sudbury Scrub, a 40k podcast for the Sudbury community. And oh my god, how many times am I going to have to record this episode? <laughs> uh, it's just how my program works when it uh, doesn't get, or when, when I'm recording it and say I get a phone call or something on the car phone, it just cuts, it cuts it off the episode and say I'm driving stuff, I'm not thinking, I unplug it and the episode's just gone. It's like, oh man. So, let's try this again. So last time we were chatting about the Sudbury Tournament, we were talking about um, if you go, uh, what are the missions going to be? Today, I think it's now it's time to really talk about what are you going to bring? And the discussion that I've been trying to have here has been that there's a few different ways to uh, really... There are two main ways to make your list. Uh, the first way is to do a net listing. Now, so net listing is you, you go online, you find what other uh, tournaments, what people have that have won the tournament or placed very highly, or have placed with an army with a selection that, that you're close to owning, uh, what they have done, what they brought, and then you try to bring something similar. So, for example, I don't think that Weber's for Gene Steeler Cult are particularly good, but a lot of people that are playing Gene Steeler Cult and winning with them right now seem to be bringing them. So, there's obviously something to them that, even if I don't quite get it, uh, those people do. So, it's something that I need to consider. Maybe next time I, I bring neophytes, I need to start equipping them with weapons. Um, there is, sometimes you'll feel some shame in netlisting, and I really, really don't believe that that should be the case. Because, uh, just because something is built really, really good, doesn't mean that it automatically works really, really well. You also need to have a good pilot. Uh, and so that's kind of the idea, right? It comes from the idea that a jet fighter can be amazing, but if you don't have a good pilot, it's just going to crash into the ground. Um, you know, net listing, having a strong list in 40k is only part of the equation of winning a game. And I do think that it's the largest part, but it is not the complete part. It's not the complete part by a long shot. So, player skill uh, is when both sides are, are about the same in strength. Player skill is what comes down where it comes down to. Um, that does mean though that if you have a list that you know maximizes its strength, and somebody else is playing with a very minimal strength list, well then that difference in strength it won't matter how good the other player is if they can't make up that strength difference with their player skill. However, if they can, and you're bad, and they're very good, well, then they will. Somebody can can pilot, some, a very good player can pilot a much weaker list um, to victory, even though the list, the list itself is pretty weak. But you're going into a tournament, everyone's going to have pretty strong lists. So you need a list that's pretty close to being as strong in order for your skill to now be the dominant factor in beating them everyone's list is about the same strength, then the difference between those lists uh, won't be very much in terms of strength. And there, the player skill gap is the most important 
determinant in who wins. So just because you're using a net list does not mean that you're a weak player. In fact, you are giving yourself the best chance to show how strong of a player you are. Um, the other main way is to really try to find some kind of plan that your army, that your faction, or factions, are capable of executing. Um, and I think there's... Main, like, at its core, in 40k, there are two main plans. There are two sides to this equation. Uh, how do you win? You know, how, how do you put yourself into situations where you win? Where you score points? And how do you not lose? Which is, how do you um, stop your opponent from executing their plan? And or how, how do you stop your, your stuff from dying? So that's really it. Everything in your army needs to accomplish something in that way. And the really, really good netlisted armies out there uh, do achieve that. They are, are lists that are really able to execute a plan, and they are pretty good at stopping their opponents from executing their plan. Uh, but one of the simplest ways to do that is to kill your opponent's army. Because chances are, as you're killing their army, you are simply moving to the positions where you will win. You will be moving to the objectives. You will be holding. You'll be holding more, killing more. You'll be doing those kinds of things. Um, and then you're stopping your opponent from winning because they are removing their units from the board, so they are not getting to objectives, or they're getting there and they're getting killed. They are not. Um, holding more. They are not killing you because they have run out of stuff to kill you with. So that's why killing things is generally a pretty good plan, but it can't be the only plan. Gene Stiller Cult can be very, very good at killing things. Dark Eldar can be very, very good at killing things. Eldar in general can be very, very good at killing things, and Eldar can be very good at not being killed. So that's why Eldar generally does pretty well in the game, and they're pretty fast. Like, the Eldar play a strong, strong game. People say, well, they're kind of always a good army in 40k, and it's because those tenants are always some of the major things that the Eldar are designed to do. They are always designed to be able to kill something if they want it dead. They are designed to be able to make, prevent something from being killed if they really don't want it to be dead. And they are pretty fast. They can get to where they need to be. Those are all hallmarks of a strong thing. And the Eldari as an overall faction execute on that. Um, they have options to execute on that. Uh, but it does mean they always do it as well as other people. It's just an overall concept that you can easily see in the army. And that's why, because it's a general theme in them, that's why they tend to always be doing well in every edition. So, uh, you know, you try to factor that in. How are you able to, to kill stuff with that, prevent yourself from being killed, get to objectives? Um, if there are units in your army that don't do those things, or just do one of those three things, then you really got to kind of consider, is this a unit that's worth having? Uh, I, I think a unit of Rocksaw Acolytes for Gene Stoko is a good example, because they are they fill two of those roles. They are able to 
to get there and kill something because they can uh, the rock saws with all their attacks and other ways that you can kind of buff them up pretty easily uh, they are able to kill stuff absolutely they'll they'll kill knights um, and they're able to get there because they can deep strike so they get to just kind of show up however once on the board they are not very good at not getting killed even in close combat once they're in close combat they're uh, so frail that they will uh, they will die very quickly so um, that's that's a unit that's not taken over because it only really fulfills two of those three points um, a unit that will that used to fulfill all three points but now it's going to be a real question assault centurions in Ravenguard it was that they could uh, show up kind of anywhere so they could get there they would kill things for sure in close combat absolutely they're very strong and they're pretty tough because first of all they have a lot of wounds a high armor save and uh, outside of 12 inches they would automatically get cover making them even tougher and if they were already in cover they would get minus one to being hit outside 12 inches so you know again even more defensive buffs so they kind of hit all three points on that even though I've never fought against them you can just easily see why they were being a good unit like this now that they can't get there because that warlord trait is now preventing assault centurions from being poor deployed you're probably not really going to see a whole lot of them because they not being able to get there means that they're probably not really going to be able to kill things the only thing that they'll be good at is not dying which will remain but one out of three things usually means that you're not a good unit most units in the game are at least good at one of those three things uh pox walkers are a good example of a unit that's good at one thing they are good at not dying they are good at not being removed from the board uh, if you buff them up a lot they can be good at killing things and when they've lost some a few just a few models and they go up against some infantry then they get to replenish their you their numbers and then that that's really good but uh, you know they're not really able to get there that's another big weakness of the unit um, Cultist. When cultist spam was a thing, was a unit that would uh, not really kill things too well, but enough guys and enough small attacks, you'll still take stuff down. Um, they could uh, they could get there because you would tide of traders them into a beneficial position, and that would also be something that would help them not die because you would instantly replenish their numbers to full, and. Uh, with a lot of cultists on the board, that also was something that would help them not die. Just the fact that there were so many wounds to try to chew through, and you would have Avidon nearby again, with so that their leadership wouldn't cause them to run. They would become fearless. So, again, a lot of ways that you can take a look at that and say, alright, this is a unit that was able to fill, uh, you know, at least two of those three things. That's why it was considered a good unit. And then as things change, things change. And, you know, the game gets more and more lethal means that more and more people are more and more able to kill a whole ton of cultists so they're not really as resilient as they were before tide of traders got reduced to once per game um so again you know people just don't do it as much things of that nature uh so yeah you look at your army you try to figure out a plan based on those kinds of things. What what do I have 
that uh, has a lot of hitting potential, so I can, you know, how do I kill my opponent's stuff? Because that's honestly one of the best ways to stop yourself from losing. You can also stop yourself from losing from, uh, you know, just flooding a board. And that was the whole idea of, of Plague Bears, right? Even if the Plague Bears didn't really kill things, and let's face it, Plague Bears could kill things. Uh, even if the Plague Bears didn't really kill things, uh, there were just so many of them, and they were all stacked to the nines on defensive buffs and stuff like that, uh, it was really hard to kill them. So there's a way that they just didn't lose, right? Even if they weren't really imposing their, uh, restricting their opponent's plan all too much. The way that they also restricted their opponent's plan was by um, being so resilient, but also ending up across the board, because you would have a force that would allow them to advance and charge and get extra inches on movement, so they ended up being, like, really fast, these Plague Bears. So, that's kind of, you know, those are some of the ideas that you want to try to take a look at. Um, what, how can my army kill things, number one, but also get there how can they how can they get that distance um how can they arrive at the spots where i need them to be if it's just well i'm just gonna kill things and slowly move out that can work but you gotta be really lethal you gotta be super lethal then because um your opponent's gonna be able to see you your moves coming from a mile away so that's not you know, the only people that have really been able to do that were the Iron Hands, because they were extremely lethal, while also being um, extremely hard to kill. So they were able to just, they were able to do that plan. And that, like, when you have those things, then, okay, you can just slowly push up. You gotta be the strongest army in the game to or in order to execute uh, a strategy like that, because a lot of other people are going to probably be more killy than you, or tougher than you, or both. And at that point, then it comes down to trying to be in more places. So there we go. I got through the whole episode. Yay! <laughs> and you know what? I'll, I'll try to get maybe Aaron on here, because Aaron, uh, long-time Eldar, Dark Eldar player, and also guard player, that so he's very used to trying to play a game where he has to get places and he knows the strength of his Eldar when they're able to get places even if they're not actually stronger than your opponent uh, and then you know he tries to remember that when he plays his Astra Militarum that well I need to get out and grab these things and how do I execute that better so thank you all for listening keep on wargaming Welcome to Sudbury Scrub, a 40k podcast for the Sudbury community. So, we've started up the campaign. Got a couple of games in already. And hopefully line up the next mission of the Tyranid campaign. The Blood of Ball. I'm calling it Blood of Ball. It's not Blood of Ball. It's a whole bunch of things. But what else are you going to call it? The Tyranid Blood Angel campaign? Meh. No, it's blood of ball. Why? Because we're Tyranids are going for ball. Um, so it, it, it's been so far, like I said, it's been very kind of disorganized on that. It's just been hey, who wants to have this game? And that's fine. Because you know what? At the end of the day, I'm playing games. It's part of a narrative campaign. 
I don't care if there's a whole, like, you know, you get this bonus or that bonus or anything like that. Nope. That's not important here. Right now, I'm just playing through missions, hoping a story kind of naturally ends up coming out of it. And the last, latest mission that I posted up on the Salty Astardes page, um, gathered a little bit of interest from some of the Space Marine players saying, hey, I like to play this. This this sounds like a fun mission, even though, and again, this these these you know Dante and Jeff must be like thinking from that same narrative perspective, because this mission is seems <clears throat> pretty uh, pretty stacked in favor of the Tyranids, in, in, in my opinion. <laughs> so it's fun to look at that, and it's like when you read the mission, you say, you know what, something cool is going to happen. Uh, even if, like I said, it's just because you're going to end up seeing stuff that you wouldn't normally see. So, speaking of which, that was one of the fun things of these last two missions. So the first two, uh, I played against Aaron, because he has Imperial Guard. He was really the only Imperial Guard player that was uh, somewhat interested in it. He's had a, a rough schedule of things, so I don't think I'm going to be able to get many games against him during the rest of the campaign. So feel free to speak up if you're interested. And, you know, I got to use, um, I got to use Lictors and Death Leaper, courtesy of Keith, who lent me those uh, miniatures, because I don't own any Lictors as a tier player. And that is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and that is, that was neat. That, that was interesting to see. All right, how, how do these models play? Because I never use these models. Um... And it's supposed to be about, like, kind of this initial stages of the invasion, so that's why you're seeing these vanguard organisms. And then one of the missions was, like, in these tunnels, which was really cool as well. And it plays a totally different kind of 40k when you don't have just access to move around the whole map. Right? So it, it, just changing up the battlefield like that can be really, can cause a very different style of game to come out. And so yeah, I got to use some models that I've effectively um, put to the side for a long time. And I got to use, uh, I'm being forced to use, the Leviathan Hive Fleet, which again is a Hive Fleet that I don't think of when I'm playing the game, because I think, you know, you know I, I really like the 3D6 advance and the fall back and charge for Kraken, that's pretty amazing. There's, there's a reason why, um, you know, professional, uh, pro players that play Tyranids, they just use Kraken, because they use, you use either Kraken for close combat stuff, or you use Kronos for shooting stuff. And it's, it works. <laughs> it is, there's a reason why that they do it, because it, it, it is just more effective. Um, but, you know what? Having Leviathan and having a feel-no-pain on most, not all of the army, but most of the army, got we got to work for it a bit more than uh, some of the other feel-no-pain armies where it's just intrinsic across all their guys. For the nids here, you only get it if you're within synapse range. But, uh, and for the small games, that's a big deal. Uh, because these little ones have been... You know, just some lictors and stuff like that. There's not a whole lot of synapse on the board. Um, so making, trying to 
and you're playing narratively. So, I mean, how much synapse is there going to be in a small game that also is narrative, right? Um, in the first mission, out, out of 400 points, I had a Broodlord, and I'm not, and I, I got a bunch of Lictors. And the whole thing about Lictors is they are Vanguard organisms. Organisms. They are forward deploying. They're not going to be within six inches of the Broodlord during the game. That's just not what you're going to do. Um, so, you know, don't not bend fitting on it for them. Um, you know, you're in the tunnels. You got to be within six inches, like around a corner kind of thing, right? It, that's not really what you're going to do. Um, yeah, so like, like you know, you're you're trying out these different combinations of things, just because not because it's good, but because it's cool. And then if you can make it work afterwards, whilst it's cool, well then that's really cool. <laughs> uh, so looking for this next mission because this next one's supposed to be really big, like three thousand points um, on the table, which is a very large game, and especially if it's narrative stuff. So not going to be bringing out. 3,000 points uh, of things that are just equipped to the tits. No, no. These are going to be 3,000 points of things that are just, you know, dudes for the most part. If you have an aura, that'll be cool, but I'm fully expecting, uh, you know, a Blood Angels player to say, all right, well, I'm coming down. And I'm coming down with all my stuff, and there are going to be assault marines and stuff like that because that's cool. Even if assault marines aren't really considered to be amazing. Just because, hey, here's... It's not just going to be Slam Gwinius coming down, right? In fact, will that person even make room for a Slam Captain? Probably. But here again, the Blood Angels can't come down until turn 4. So is that the model that they want to bring down on turn 4? Is that the model that's going to win them that match? Or are they like, okay, I, I got only two turns... What do I do? Do I do try to do something else? Uh, the narrative points. It's, you know, Brother Corbulo is really supposed to be there. So, you know, that's going to be an HQ choice. And Brother Corbulo does not have a jump pack, I don't think. So, again, you know, there are these interesting things. Of how do we bring him down? Well, he's, he can walk on. But... Wouldn't it be cool if he comes down with everybody else, and that means bringing him down in a drop pod, right? Like, some fun stuff like that. How many times do you see Brother Corbulo right now in the game? I don't think ever. So, here's a chance where you get to see him. Um, for myself, I'm going to be running a whole bunch of guns, because this mission calls for running a whole bunch of guns. It doesn't actually call for it, but... It says you're supposed to be taking one of these formations. Formations don't exist in 7th edition any longer. So uh, we did. I did some things in the mission that are like, alright, here are these stratagems that effectively give you a formation bonus. And um, so there's going to be like just waves of guns coming in, which is going to be freaky because there's going to be all these little griblies coming through. Um, and then they're just going to respawn. Right, and that, but that's something that you don't normally see in the game. So, uh, and considering that guns aren't necessarily very tough, <laughs> um, I'm not real. I'm not. I'm expecting the visual of it to look pretty cool, more so than the 
execution of it. If I can get, um, if I can get three units to get respawned during the game, because they're like, you know, just these endless waves of guys, I think that would be awesome. I don't care if it means that I'm getting blown off the table, I still just think that'll be awesome. And now this is where the mission definitely does um, have something going for the Imperials, is that all the objectives start with the Imperials, and the objectives go with the old style of mysterious objectives, which if you just have played 8th edition, you don't know what mysterious objectives are. They were objectives uh, during during last edition, and I think the edition before that. Um, Games Workshop made it that if mysterious objectives were in effect, which was the default, by default was yes, um, then whenever you got up within three inches of the center of objective, really they just said three within three inches of the objective at the time. Now we say the center of the objective because it allows for those really easily d determined circles. Um, then you, first of all, you, you held the objective like normal, but once you start holding it, uh, you roll. The first time somebody gets up to it, you roll a dice. And whatever the result is, is the type of objective that's there. So it could be just nothing. In which case, it's just a, like a normal object. That was just one, one result. Uh, if you rolled a two on a d6, and other ones were like a sky fire nexus, where you get better chances to hit against things that fly, which would be really good against some armies and not so good against the others. Uh, generally, that was probably the best one to get because all the best stuff in seventh edition had, they didn't have the fly keyword, but there were things that uh, were called flyers, whether it was a skimmer or it was an actual plane, or it was, um, I don't think guys with jump pack actually counted as flyers, um, but th things of that nature. Whereas now it's actually quite easy. It's like, it has a fly keyword, bam, so it's going to have bonus to hit against those things. Um, there's the grav wave generator, which is, I think, a result of six. So you roll that, and now... If you want to try charging somebody that's under this, you subtract two from your charge range. So it's kind of like if you have a unit that's um, inside a forest in current uh, rules. In fact, if this, if the grav wave generator here appears inside of a forest, if the Imperial Guard player puts it inside a forest uh, and and gets that result, I'll be minus four to charge a unit that's holding that. That's uh, really that, that that is a difficult charge now. That's an extremely difficult charge. you got to be right next to them to make that charge. Uh, you know, so there's the result of one, which is my least favorite result because it involves the most rolling for what used to be, like, really no purpose. Uh, beforehand it was roll a d6 for every single turn that you re after you've revealed the objective. Um, on a result of one, it blows up. It goes boom. So you had to roll a 1 to get the objective. Then you had to roll a 1 again for that thing to explode. And it was a blast template. So you could... Because it was a blast template, which was 2.5 inch diameter, I think, you could hold the objective by being at the edge of the 3 inches away. Um, while being totally safe from the explosion effect. 
And this thing could explode time over and over and over again, which was also kind of strange. Um, because you're thinking, okay, how does it go kaboom over and over? So yeah, and even if you did get hit by it, it was a strength four. It was it was a strength four hit for each model that was hit in it. So again, uh, just by keeping away from it, you couldn't be hit by it. Even if you did get hit by it. Uh, a lot of things in the game did not care about a strength 4 hit. So, just change that over to the what is now much more classic. Um, now if you're within 3 inches... I, I say classic, now is much more just kind of agreed on uh, the way that D, uh, Games Workshop handles these kinds of things. Calling it an acid geyser, so that way it could go off over and over. And it's a unit within three inches of the center, so pretty much if you hold it, there's a chance to get hurt by it, so no longer, well, I can just hold it and be totally safe, which defeats the purpose. Um, so if, the, if you hold it, there's a chance to get hurt by it, you take D6 Mortal Wounds. I love that mechanic for those kinds of things in the game, because a Mortal Wound is a big deal, you just can't stop it. You, you get hit by it, you get hurt D6 times. And so... You can hold it with a big unit, and that way if it goes off your unit, you're losing D6 wounds. There's chances to mitigate that, of course, with feel no pain kind of stuff. And certain models have lots of wounds, so they don't really care as much. But holding it with multiple units is what I think this now achieves, is that you don't want to hold this with multiple units. You just want to hold it with one. Because uh, if you have multiple units there and this goes off, multiple units can really get hurt. So... Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Anyway, that's been the story so far. We'll see how this keeps going. So thank you very much for listening. Sudbury Scrub, keep on wargaming. Welcome to Sudbury Scrub, Border Cave podcast for the Sudbury community. So it's happened. Sudbury now has a case of COVID-19, now is officially considered a pandemic, and so I figure, you know, this is a good time to chat about what that means for our gaming community. Because obviously, you know, there could be a lot of fear that this causes. A lot of people kind of, you know, may get freaked out by that kind of thing. And for some people, that will be a reasonable reaction. For others, not so much. So, let's take a look. Um, the main notes, the main things to note about this virus is that uh, it has... First of all, if you're ever feeling sick, you really shouldn't go to a tournament. Or you should stay back. I've been sick at a tournament before. Because I was out of town, I'm like, well, I feel better, I'll go to it. And then while I was there, you know, went really south. And I felt okay for, you know, my health and stuff, but my voice totally went in. So my second day was not so fun. Um, so even if just for your own comfort, you shouldn't go. More so for the health of other people. Now, I bring up the health of other people because that is the primary concern for illness is usually not for yourself, but to try and protect other people that may be at risk. 
uh, in the case of COVID-19, even you can get sick with it, but you will not present any symptoms that you are sick. You will not yourself know that you are sick uh, for something like between a week and two weeks. And so in that time, you can be transferring the virus to other people and not be aware that you are doing so. And of course, that means that somebody that is sick that doesn't know it can transfer it to you and then you can transfer it again to somebody else and not know it, right? So that, that, that's, that is the risk, is just how quickly this can spread between people because of the fact that people don't really know it. So for a tournament, uh, or I should say, the people that we're really concerned about is not most of the individual players in Sudbury. Most of us are, are healthy. We're young, but not too young. And, uh, you know, we're in generally good shape. But there are a lot of people that aren't. Whether it's um, people that have older relatives, old people that are older are seriously at risk of having serious complications. Uh, now, from what I understand, people that are very young, so people that have children, there's a lot of people in our community that have children. And lastly, people that have some other kind of compromised immune system. So, for that reason, you want to be trying to protect these other people that you don't even know really about. I think a lot of people in Sudbury uh, have probably heard how, for myself, that my mother um, had a run-in with cancer um, a few years back. And then, not everyone, but again, a number of people would probably be aware that she just had another run-in with cancer this past year. So she's still recovering from that. And for her, it is soup, it is critically important that we avoid getting her sick because she can't fight that off. And the only reason you know about this now, if you hadn't already known about before, is because I just told you. But there are a lot of other people that are in similar situations and they don't speak up about it. And that's compounded by the fact of how common some of these things are, like being old. A lot of us, by being older ourselves, not even that old, but older, we some of us still have grandparents that are still alive. And those people, if you know, if you get sick and don't know and you pass it on to them, they this can take them out. And that's somebody that almost everyone can again, young children. Young children don't have the same kind of defenses. Um, that we do. In fact, in the case of this, their their generally strong defenses can actually become a liability. And so, again, um, we're kind of in that age range that even though our we ourselves are generally pretty healthy from it, a lot of the people that we interact with on a regular basis aren't. So that's why, you know, you do want to be mindful of it. So what can you do about it? Because we do have a tournament coming up in April, and nobody wants to see people backing out or people being afraid to go due to concerns like this. Uh, and you know, we'll see where things are in a month from now, right? Things things can change uh, drastically at this point. Same thing for in June. We'll see what happens. Uh, the best thing to do 
is to avoid contact. Now, you can play a game of 40k and still um, and avoid contact and still have a game together. That's actually it's pretty awesome. Um, number one, you know, don't touch models other than your own. Myself, you know, I like to help other people out, and it's already polite to ask them, can I touch this? But in this case now, just consider saying, you know, it's probably best if, if we don't. Because then you're, there's fewer points of contact between you and your opponent. Um, right now, shaking hands. The handshake is classic. I love giving people a handshake. I, I love hugging people. I, I like, you know, showing people that I really enjoyed things. Like, I'm a very physical person in that way. I say I'm very Italian like that a lot of the times. Um... Instead, you gotta be considering, you know, maybe just do a do a fist bump. Do some people say shake elbows? Some people say, you know, give the uh, live long and prosper Spock salute. Right? Any of those kinds of things. You can show people your respect for them playing the game without um, endangering them. And this goes good for everybody, not just for our game, but it's it, especially relevant for our game. Dice. Make app, dice in, in gaming materials. Make sure to bring your own for it. Um, a good idea also is maybe now is the time to really consider investing in a dice app. Because again, that just will limit the amount the point the amount of point of contacts between you and your potential opponent. So in this way, we can still all play together and just put um, each other's families and each other's friends and their families at a lower risk of things. Now, if, you know, the worst should happen, um, I think, you know, one of the things that is really great about our game is that there isn't a whole lot of investment that is required in order to play. And so, even in a, a you know downturn economy where you don't have uh, the capability to buy new models or whatnot, we can still all keep playing, and that should be one of the great things about our hobby. And the fact that nowadays, you know, we live online, we can have discussions still, we can still talk with each other without having to get together in a big group or a great big forum. And if we do get together in a big group, again, it's just being mindful of those things. Wash your hands regularly. Actually, after every battle, uh, you should wash your hands. Which is already a good idea, because I don't know about you, but a bunch of times I play 40k, and when I'm done the match, I can see all kinds of grime underneath my fingernails. <laughs> I don't even know where that comes from, but it's there. So, you know, just uh, consider doing that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think that so long as we just keep cognizant of these things, you know, don't panic on them because ultimately, you know, that safety, that, that fear that sometimes we can feel, that's just because we, you know, we love the people that are close to us and we want to help protect them. And we can continue helping to protect them, but still get to enjoy the things that we like doing just by being cognizant of these things. So thank you very much for listening. This is Sudbury Scrub. Keep on wargaming.